Air can be reached at 843-681-3999 or online at eacair.com. The Low Country Christian Women's Connection is celebrating the season with a Christmas luncheon December 7th at the Hampton Hall Clubhouse. There will be Christmas music, holiday games, fun, prizes, a guest speaker, and of course, lunch. It's only $28. Contact Julie at julie.ott.az at gmail.com. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Buford Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you are new to 88.7 or live streaming at WAGP.net, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. You can call us at the local 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that's 525-1859, or toll-free at 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, TBL, stands for the Bible line, TBL, at WAGP.net. When you call in, uh, maybe there's an issue that you're facing in your personal life or a, a theological challenge or application that you're looking for guidance to. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. We do give, as always, preference to live callers, and so we're glad to be here in this new month of December, and Walt's at the board with me today. Walt, uh, let's go ahead and get started. I know we've had many, many questions come in, and um, and hopefully we'll also take some live callers this morning. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, sir. Our first caller uh, is Robert, and he is on line one. Robert, good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Hey, good morning, Pastor Carl. Uh, uh, God bless you, and thank you for all you do for the ministry. I have a question uh, of what the Bible says, and also I would like to know your personal uh, opinion as far as uh, cremation and, and what we should do there in that situation. I'll hang up and, and just listen. Thank you so much again. Yeah, no, great question. I appreciate it. And, you know, in, in 2018, I believe it was, for the first time we crossed a new line in American history and that for the first time more people were actually cremated than buried. And so cremation has become extremely popular uh, the first cremation in America was 100 years after the nation was formed, and it was largely started and promoted by Unitarians. Uh, uni means one, and so Unitarian theology developed with time, but the essence of it was a denial of the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the deity of Christ. So God's one, but he's not triune. And of course, as uh, Unitarians began to take over major institutions like Harvard and Yale and different colleges and began to take over seminaries, uh, their liberal theology 
uh, began to express itself more and more. And one aspect of Unitarian theology by 1875 was this issue of cremation. Because they did not affirm in life after death, because they did not affirm others in the uh, bodily resurrection, they said you continued, but you would have no resurrection of the body. Because they wanted to defy Scripture, much like the Sadducees, who were liberal theologians in in Christ's day who denied these basic truths, they said, let's see what your God can do with this body, and they burned it into oblivion. Now, the thought was, you know, irreparable, just unbelievable for a Christian in that day. They they just did not like, obviously, what Unitarians represented, and they thought it was a dishonor to God and to those who are made in the image of God. So for a Christian to cremate, uh, it wasn't an issue. It becomes an issue as the church gets f- further and further away from Scripture. In the latter times, men will fall away from the faith. There it's articular, the faith, meaning the body of truth we call the Bible. And so with uh, people who are untaught, even born-again, blood-bought Christians who don't know their Bibles, uh, they began to adopt practices, many of which were traditions and some that were antithetical to the Word of God. Uh, there's no examples of cremation in Scripture. The only people who burn the body, so to speak, are pagans. And so you find pagan examples. Some would point to Saul and his three sons, but that was not a true cremation. If you remember when they fought a ferocious battle, their bodies were hung on a wall. We visit that very place when we go to Israel typically, and it was there because their bodies were so mutilated that they burned the flesh off so that they could carry the bodies back to Israel, and they carried the bones and then buried the bones, much like uh, Joseph. You know, he had a box of bones, and he made his son's promise. When God fulfills what he says he will do, and Joseph believed it, and uh, you go into the land of promise, I want you to carry my bones there, and I want you to bury me. And indeed, that's exactly what they did. In fact, typically when a Jew dies, they are buried the same day they die, uh, unless it happens after sundown. So if I died this morning at 11 o'clock before sundown, typically if I were Jewish and living in Israel, to this day I would be in the ground before the end of the day. Uh, and so in ancient times, what they would do, they did not, you know, embalm as such. And so they put the body uh, and wrapped the body and placed the body in a tomb. And once the body disintegrated with time, uh, then they would remove the cloth, take the bones and put it in what's called an ossuary. And so your bones after the flesh was gone was placed in an ossuary. And that's why they find tombs to this day in Israel where there's multiple people who are buried because their bones are in a box. And so you could have several generations in a single tomb. With that said, um, the scriptural pattern is not to cremate, but it is to bury. How do I know? Well, there are some things, remember, that we do, not necessarily by direct command, but by example. And so, for instance, by example, not by direct command, we have deacons in the church. We are not commanded to have deacons. We are commanded to appoint elders, but we assume we are to have deacons because we have that example in the New Testament. And so Paul writes in Philippians 1.1 to the deacons and elders who in Philippi, 
Uh, God gives qualifications for what the office of deacon should look like and so on. So we have deacons in the church. And so there are some things that we do by example. And one of those historically, biblically was to bury. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they were all buried. Rebecca, Sarah, they were all buried. You come into the New Testament, even disobedient believers like Ananias and Sapphira, they were buried. Uh, John the Baptist, he was buried. Um, that's what they did with a believer's body. And in the great resurrection chapter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul assumes that the believer will bury their loved ones. Uh, why? Because um, he says that uh, being buried is likened to a dead seed being put in the ground. You put a seed that looks dead, that seemingly has no life, in the soil with an expectation that life will come from that seed. And so in faith, the believer would, quote-unquote, plant the body with the expectation that indeed God will raise the body up. This perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality as that great chapter of Scripture closes out. Uh, He assumes the same in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. We're out of the grave, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, There is an example in Scripture where God himself officiates at a funeral, and it's the funeral of Moses. And so if you go to the very last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, if you remember, Moses did not go into the land of promise, um, and God gave his reasons why he excluded that servant. What a great man of God. Look forward to meeting Moses someday in in heaven. And so it says the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, uh, meaning the Lord, that is Yahweh, that's the nearest antecedent, uh, buried him in the valley uh, in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So, indeed, he was buried. In fact, Jude recognizes that, that he was buried as well, because he describes a dispute over the body of Moses after he died. So I say all that to say that if you want to follow what God did by example, is he buried Moses. And that was what Christians have always done. The thought of cremating your loved one was just beyond belief. And to this day, Jews in Israel, you know, you cannot find a crematorium anywhere in the whole nation of Israel. There are none. Some say, well, that's just because, you know, the thought is repulsive in light of what Hitler did to some six million people. No doubt that's part of it, but it's much more than that. It's rooted in a deep theology that out of respect for the body And because we are acknowledging what God's Word teaches, that there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul, that we are to bury our loved ones. And typically, people are never consistent. Uh, I've done over 500 funerals since I've been in the ministry, and sometimes I have to do a funeral for a child. Never even a thought. Never even a thought to cremate that child. Well, Well, they just see... That little baby, a year old, two years old, eight years old, is just so precious. We, we just can't even conceive of putting that child in an oven. By the way, when you put Uncle Fred's body in that crematorium or in that place to uh, cremate the body, you think you get back Uncle Fred's ashes exclusively? 
you think uh, that funeral home goes in there and, okay, we, we've we just, you know, uh, cremated Fred Schmo and uh, rake out his ashes and we'll put him in an urn to give the family. You think they go in and they vacuum that thing out and get it perfectly? There's no telling who you have in that urn. Uh, that's just the reality of it. But, again, people are never consistent, never. And so what, why is it reprehensible to cremate a child? Just because it's precious. We wouldn't want to do that. Why are people cremating today? Well, you know, it's cheaper. It's not that much cheaper. And listen, as a pastor who's done hundreds of funerals, when your body is present, there is so much more punch to your funeral. I guarantee probably nearly everyone listening has family members who are lost and not on their way to heaven. And I've seen God break more hearts and answer more prayers of someone who's gone home to be with the Lord at their funeral where he's brought that individual that they had been praying for maybe for decades to faith in Christ. Why? Because there's something about the reality of death when the body's there. And so Satan wants to smush that out of people's minds. He doesn't want a body there. He just wants an urn, if there's even an urn with a picture. And that's all he wants. So look, you know, people do what's important to them. They go on these cruises and they spend, you know, five or $6,000. And and you don't have to spend much more than that. I know all the average cost of a funeral is ten k or whatever. Look, it doesn't have to be that high. You don't have to buy this $6,000 Mercedes-Benz, you know, coffin. You can actually buy one through Costco if you want and have it ordered and shipped to the funeral home. Uh, and typically they won't show you in the funeral home when they bring you into the showroom of caskets, one that they could actually provide that's a literal pine box, maybe with felt stapled to the outside. So you don't have to spend nearly as much money as you might think. And so give that some thought. Your funeral will have so much more power when you do it God's way. And I think that's one of the reasons why God would have his people to bury their loved ones. Because God ultimately cares about the souls of men. And two, you are affirming the truth when you plant that casket in the ground, what Scripture says. Now, people come to me, hey, you know, my mother died and she's going to be cremated. Will you do her funeral? Of course I will. I'll do the funeral. But if you're asking me what's the biblical pattern in the biblical way, it is not to cremate. It is to bury your loved ones. And if that sounds antithetical to our day, it just shows how ignorant the church is over what the Scripture says. I have a whole message on this. Uh, I think it's in my Genesis series in Genesis 25 where I deal with this in greater depth. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, you can download it and you can hear entire books of the Bible and different subjects and different courses that I've taught and so on. Let's go to the next question, Walt. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question is from James out of Ridgeland, South Carolina. He asked, when do people who are living on earth during the millennial reign get their new bodies? Uh, well, it's, it's a good question. Uh, the scripture doesn't specify, but it's assumed in light of the pattern that we have seen through the revelation and through the various resurrections that take place. Uh, we speak of the first resurrection, which is not a singular resurrection, but the first resurrection program, just like we speak of the second death. Uh, Not everyone dies at once, but they die over the centuries, and not everyone is raised at the same time. The first one to be raised from the dead, of course, is 
the Lord Jesus, and after his resurrection, Matthew specifies, a handful of Old Testament saints are raised out of the grave. They walk around Jerusalem for, I don't know, half a day, a day, it doesn't say, and then, then they're taken up into heaven. But again, this is in keeping with the Feast of First Fruits, which was one of the seven uh, Old Testament festivals that God gave to the people of Israel that pictures both the first and second coming of Christ. And in the first coming of Christ, four festivals were fulfilled, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, which happened, of course, on Resurrection Sunday. So Passover Friday, Leavened Bread begins on Saturday, um, Feast of First Fruits Sunday when Christ is resurrected, and then on the after the 49th day of Unleavened Bread on the 50th day, Pentecost, a great celebration, the Spirit of God comes. And so um, there's a program of in the first resurrection, Christ, this handful of saints, then the rapture, then Old Testament saints, they have not yet been resurrected. They're raised at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Then there are people who live during the millennium. If someone lives only to be 100 years old, these are people who enter their natural bodies um, during the time of the millennial reign of Messiah. These are folks who survived the tribulation period, and we'll be looking at a series of judgments in this series. I'm doing God's prophetic schedule. There's not just one big, massive judgment uh, that people sometimes speak of, you know, and sometimes you'll hear a Christian ignorantly say, oh, Lord, may we be prepared for that day when we meet you at the great white throne judgment. I have no plans on being at the great white throne judgment because the only people who are there are lost people. And so there's not one big general resurrection, but that's what amillennialists have to do as they twist the scripture and deny God's future for Israel. Old Testament saints are raised. Those who enter the millennial reign in their natural body are able to have uh, children and grandchildren. Some of them uh, will not come to faith. There'll be a rebellion um, and so forth. So at the end of the millennium, then all the dead are raised of all time. We know that from the next chapter that follows Revelation uh, 20, uh, 11 to 15. And it's assumed at that point, of course, that those saints who at that point are still on the earth, who who either entered the millennial reign at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and yes, people can live the entire time. If a man lives only to be 100 years during the millennial reign, he's considered like he's got a problem. Uh, of course, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Why does he need to rule with a rod of iron if there's all believers present? because there's not all believers present. No unbelievers enter the kingdom. But the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, however many kids you can procreate in a course of a 1,000 years uh, where the earth is repopulated, they will have to make decisions for Christ. And so since 21.1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the current earth is gone, and since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, this body that I'm in this morning is not suitable to walk in the new Jerusalem. So God is going to give me a new body at the rapture. This mortal must put on immortality. This um, perishable must put on the imperishable. And therefore, since there's a new heaven and a new earth, uh, and the new Jerusalem comes down, those saints who uh, know the Lord through the tribulation period at that point receive the resurrection body. It's not specifically stated, but it's clearly implied letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Good, good question. Uh, that brother is thinking.
and it's good to think uh, about theology and spiritual truth. It tells me you're searching the scriptures. Let's go to the next question. Our next question comes from Kenya from Robertville, South Carolina. She asked, when I get to heaven, will I recognize my parents and will they recognize me? Meaning, will they know me as their daughter or will I just be familiar to them? Also, I was wondering about my grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, and so forth. Will we all recognize each other? Uh, we're kind of dealing with a series of questions here today, aren't we, Walt? Uh, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, so they're kind of thematic, and God's Spirit sometimes does that. Um, so, Kenya, you're asking an excellent question, and the short answer is yes. The Bible teaches that we'll be able to recognize people in heaven. And there's several examples. Think about King Saul, for instance. He recognizes Samuel on that occasion when the witch of Endor summons up Samuel from the realm of the dead. Um, the scripture affirms that, oh, this is Samuel. They actually, he actually saw Samuel. Now, that was a unique uh, setting. It's prior to uh, the ascension of Christ into heaven, uh, but Samuel was recognizable. Uh, David when he loses his infant little baby. And, of course, he's mourning, he's fasting. Uh, He overhears his servants saying the child's dead, and so what does he do? They're afraid to even give him the news in fear that he might hurt himself because he's so seemingly despondent over this baby that is about a year old who I'm sure he loved deeply and enjoyed and rocked on his knee and kissed and hugged and and all those good things, and yet he actually gets up and washes his face, and they say, we don't, we don't get it. We thought you'd be worse off. He said, well, look, I, I can't change anything. But then he says in Second Samuel 12, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So here's King David. He assumes that he'd be able to recognize his son in heaven, despite the fact that his son died as a little infant. And so he didn't expect to see some you know, nameless, faceless son without any identity. Now, when you come into a parable that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 16, uh, some would say it's not a parable in that if it's a parable, it's the only parable that Jesus uses an actual name. But whether it's a parable or an actual illustration makes no difference because every parable that Jesus tells, he only uses truth to teach truth. And if you remember, Um, the rich man dies, and he is in Hades, in what we would call unrighteous Hades, or Sheol. And the poor man, Lazarus, dies, and he's in Abraham's bosom, which is a Hebraism for righteous Sheol or righteous Hades. We think of the word Hades only in negative terms. Well, that's true on this side of the ascension, because Jesus emptied out righteous Hades and carried all those Old Testament believers to heaven in Ephesians 4. So now from this moment on, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Hades at one time had a good side and a bad side. The Hebrew word is Sheol. If you were reading the Septuagint, it wouldn't say Sheol, it would say Hades. And so in either case, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, not because he's poor and rich men go to hell, because Lazarus is a believer and the rich man is an unbeliever. But what is true in that parable is that these people are recognizable. Lazarus and the rich man are recognizable. That's not accidental. So 
Jesus in none of his parables ever uses an untruth to teach truth because the one who is the truth and the one who inspires the scripture, the spirit of truth, only uses truth. Uh, When you come to the Mount of Transfiguration, which is really kind of an interesting passage, um, remember um, Jesus in Matthew 17. Let me just flip over there for a second. Um, In Matthew 17, Jesus made a promise to the disciples. And every once in a while, someone asks me, like, when did this happen? And, um, and, it, and it's a fair question. Uh, but sometimes if we have a question, if we just keep reading, the answer comes. And of course, um, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, the last verse, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, then we're told six days later, remember the chapter in verse titles or divisions are artificial. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the inner three, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Of course, Peter makes the statement, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish We'll make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. People laugh at Peter like he's some ignoramus, you know, like he's some rube. He was an incredibly bright, sensitive uh, man of God who knew the scriptures. And of course, while he was still speaking, a bright bright cloud overshadowed them and said, behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And of course, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. And then Jesus said, get up. And anyway, they, in essence, kind of woke up and the whole thing was over. And he warned them not to speak at this point anything about it. But we're able to read it this morning. Here's my point in this. Moses and Elijah were recognizable. Uh, which is a lot to really think about. It's really interesting to think about because how would Peter, James, and John recognize Moses and Elijah when Moses has been dead for 1,500 years and Elijah has been dead for 900 years? Because God allowed them to recognize them. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now you see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall... I will fully know just as I've been fully known. And so there's coming a day when we're going to see things in a way that we haven't. And it's interesting because when you think about a first century mirror, in fact, the Corinthians to whom he is writing were famous for these bronze mirrors that they created. They were not the metallic back mirrors of today where you look in a mirror um, and you can really see yourself clearly. It was somewhat dimly. It was a poor reflection. You'd get a better reflection looking in a pool of water at your face. And so he's just saying there's coming a day when we will see with clarity. And so the Lord, because he's giving a glimpse of the coming kingdom that we'll experience, allows them to see and recognize, hey, that's Moses and Elijah. They knew exactly who these two men are. And even if you don't have a good memory, you'll remember Uncle Fred and your great-grandmother and all these other folks. So, again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Scripture tells us in 1 John, we read this on Sunday, that a day is coming when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. 
So we're going to be like Jesus. We won't be as Jesus, but we'll be like Jesus. And so Paul speaks of this coming day when our bodies will be transformed in conformity with the glory that Jesus' body has there at the end of Philippians chapter 3. And so was Jesus, if we're like Jesus, was Jesus' body recognizable? Absolutely. Now, somebody might say, well, what about the Emmaus Road disciples? They didn't recognize him. Well, the Bible says because their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. But then their eyes were opened, Luke records, and he immediately, of course, vanishes from their sight. But as you read the historical record, the disciples recognized Jesus on countless occasions, like in places like in John 21 on the shore. It's the Lord even... Even they recognize him when he appeared to a skeptical Thomas. So, yes, you will recognize your loved ones in heaven. And Paul is assuming this truth, as I've turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He is assuming this truth when he speaks of the coming rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with them. So he speaks about how we will be caught up with them, and the them, of course, is referring to their believing loved ones who are now in the presence of the Lord. That's why he's going to bring back with him, because their body is still awaiting the resurrection. The person inside that body is in heaven. And so the context of the whole passage, he ends this section with, therefore, comfort one another with these words. The whole context is that of comfort. And Paul is saying, you'll find real comfort in the fact that there's a reunion. And at this reunion, you're going to see your loved ones. And so the clear, definitive uh, implication is that you'll know that's, that's my husband who went home to be with Jesus. That's my baby boy who, who died at a year old. That, that's my little girl who died at three. You'll see your loved ones. You will recognize your loved ones. So the answer is clear from Scripture. You will know your loved ones when you get to heaven. Great question. Let's go on to the next. Again, 843-525-1859, the local South Carolina exchange. Or if you have um, email questions you want to write, you can write us directly here at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Debbie in Pineland, South Carolina, and this is actually a follow-up question to our second question from James in Ridgeland. Okay. Her question is, during the millennial reign, there will be people who are not saved, and there will be people who have their resurrected body. Does this mean there will be both people who can sin and people who can't sin? Okay, great question. So, um, Debbie, I'm glad you asked the follow-up. I guess she just called in from Pineland, and so yes. uh, uh, So let me just say that uh, we're going to cover this in depth, and some of you are listening and you're not aware of the fact that I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And so we are right now at the point of the second coming, and we'll be dealing a week from Sunday with the Battle of Armageddon, and then I I, I will we'll do a Christmas message on Christmas Sunday. And if you're listening and uh, you don't have a church to go to, come on December the 25th. Sadly, evangelical churches all across America are shutting their doors for Christmas. They're going to do a Christmas Eve service. I I said, we're not even going to do a Christmas Eve service this year 
because Christmas falls on a Sunday. We don't, we don't want people to show up on Christmas Eve and blow off the Lord's Day. We are commanded in the Word of God to gather on the first day of the week unless you are unable to do that physically. That's what you should do. So with that said, um, we are doing this series. And so what will happen at the millennium? Remember, the next event is the rapture. We go up. We receive our resurrected bodies. The whole church is raised at that point. Christ is bringing back departed spirits, loved ones who've already gone to be with Jesus. Their body is reunited with the body in the grave. Their spirit is reunited with the body in the grave. They go up. We are alive. We're caught up. We go into heaven for the Bema and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We did some separate sermons just on that. Then we come back. So Christ first comes in the air. We shall meet the Lord in the air. Very distinct from a latter part of the second coming program when he comes to the earth. Zechariah 14, he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. This Jesus whom you saw is coming back in the exact same way. We'll meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye. When he comes back at the second coming, every eye will see him. Two distinctly different events, all part of the second coming program. When he comes back at the second coming, Daniel 12 and a number of other passages teach that's when Old Testament saints are resurrected. So they too, with the church, are in resurrected bodies. Now, Jesus plainly said that the tribulation would be cut short, Matthew 24, 21, for unless these days had been cut short, no person would have been able to survive. And so the judgments begin to take place of living people who survived the Great Tribulation period. And those living people will be divided into sheep, into goats, the judgment of the Gentiles, and there'll be a judgment of the Jews as well, true believing Jews for the most part. And we'll look at what he means when he says all Israel will be saved. Holistically, Israel will turn in faith. But there will be some unbelieving Jews at that time. Such unbelievers, Jew or Gentiles, will be excluded from the kingdom. Remember, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. There will be no unbelievers entering into the millennial reign of Christ. But when the millennium starts, we'll be in resurrected bodies. Remember, Jesus promised authority over 10 cities, over five cities, over a single city. What? Based on your faithfulness now to serve the living God. And so we'll in some way be involved in the rule and reign of the Messiah during that thousand years. He'll be in Jerusalem. That will be headquarters. Um, And then the tribulation saints who enter into the millennium and their natural bodies will be able to procreate. We will not. We'll be like the angels. We don't become angels. People say oftentimes at a funeral or in a funeral home, well, He or she got her angel wings. I just heard that this morning about some famous movie star who died. She got her angel wings. No, she didn't. You don't become angels. Now, I'm not making a judgment whether she's in heaven or hell. I don't know anything about her. Um, But you uh, don't get angel wings. We're like angels in that like angels, we neither marry nor give into marriage. Angels don't procreate and have little baby cherubs, contrary to popular art. But tribulation saints will be able to procreate. Look, God has children. He has no grandchildren. And so you would think that with Jesus ruling and reigning and even ruling with a rod of iron, why would he have to rule with a rod of iron? Because there will be tribulation saints who will still have a sin nature, who could still sin just like you and I can sin today. 
and they'll have children who won't necessarily respond to the Lord Jesus. You say, how is that possible? He'll be here. He was here before, and they didn't respond. He'll be here again, and not all will respond. And when we do uh, a, a message, at least one, on the coming millennial kingdom, we'll look at you know five or six reasons why God would even have a millennium. Why wouldn't he just take us all right into heaven and, and the whole thing? There's some reasons for it. And so at the end of the thousand years, Satan, who had been bound for the full time, will be released, and he'll be able to tempt nations. Tempt who? Tempt those people who are unbelievers, who are the product of tribulation saints who entered in their natural bodies who did not believe. And so they will be drawn away. Uh, They will be um, foolishly led by the evil one, and they will respond. So, yes, uh, there'll be people in their resurrected bodies. There'll be people who are not natural men but tribulation saints, and some of their children will believe, and some of their grandchildren will believe, and some of their great-grandchildren will believe, and some of them won't. So there'll be different levels of sin during that time. But at the end, God will clean it all up before we enter into the eternal state. Good follow-up question. Listen to the series, Debbie. It's uh, online. There's about 20 messages already online, and I think I maybe have another 10 or so left. Let's go to the next caller. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, our next question is anonymous uh, from a listener in Richmond Hill, Georgia. They write, a group from the Church of God visited my daughter and presented her with two pamphlets. One, a World Mission Society Church of God and an invitation to the Passover, our way to heaven. These people were very insistent about the importance of celebrating the Passover in order to get into heaven. And they said celebrating it on the exact date was of vital importance. They also uh, concentrated on passages from Revelation 7. We were pleased that our daughter pointed out that they were manipulating the scriptures to fit their own doctrinal narrative. But we are also concerned that they will return and try to lead other college students down the wrong path. Is there any wisdom you can offer in what our daughter should do if they return? Satan is no fool, and he recognizes the opportunity like never before with young college students to sweep them away because now 80% of them who are now currently in the university, approximately 80% have never consistently been to church. Some never. So we're beginning to meet 18, 19, 20-year-olds who've only been to church a couple of times in their entire life. This is the paganism of America. So Satan's no fool. He knows that for the first time they are in a setting where they're not under the protective umbrella of their parents. And sadly, some of these kids have been brought up in churches where they've been Christianized but not converted, and because uh, they're not sound in doctrine either, because, you know, guys like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and the whole, you know, seeker-sensitive movement have helped to destroy the church. They have contributed more to the damage of the church than we could ever have imagined, and that they ignored the plain teaching of what God commanded through Paul to Timothy, that when the church meets, you're to teach sound doctrine. Oh, but that might turn off some of the unbelievers, and we want to reach these unbelievers, and that would be too heavy. And so you've got a largely ignorant church today. But this particular organization 
is a cult. And if you click on their link, which you sent us, and I clicked on their link, and here right at the top of their homepage says, the church of God believes in God the Father and God the Mother, according to the Bible. That should tell you right off, like, these folks, there's something wrong here. Uh, they, they teach that God is not only Father, but God is Mother. And then they quote Galatians 4.26, which is, again, one of the things the cults do. They like to take verses. They like to quote them out of context. And in Galatians 4.26, it says, The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. You know, you make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean if you take it out of context. The Bible says there is no God, but contextually, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so this is a a gross abuse of Scripture. He's dealing contextually with two covenants, uh, that God made two covenants, one with Hagar. I've turned here to Galatians 4. That was given at Mount Sinai with the law of Moses. And so all born under the law are like children born to the slave woman. They're in slavery. But God makes a promise of a new covenant, of a new deal. And that's uh, illustrated through Sarah, the, the free woman. And so he makes, this, or he makes this analogy between these two women. And so Sarah, the free woman, the mother of Isaac, who, by the way, is a type of Christ, according to Hebrews 11, uh, she represents the, this above Jerusalem. He's not saying God is a woman or that we're to worship God as a mother. This is just sheer heresy. And, of course, right here in their homepage, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Listen to these words. The Trinity means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one and the same, although God works with different names in each age. That's modalism. That's uh, that's T.D. Jake's theology, by the way. He He's a crook. He's a false teacher. All he has done is built millions of dollars like Joel Olstein to foster a lavish lifestyle. And so when he's directly confronted, he's never renounced modalism. Modalism says that well, God is one. Well, the Bible affirms the oneness of God, but it also teaches his triunity. And so what they're saying here in this doctrinal statement is God becomes the Father at times, or at other times God becomes the Son, or at other times God becomes the Spirit. And they're not affirming three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So this is a cult. And the cults that are springing up now within the woke evangelical church through organizations like Bethel and Hillsong and others. And again, people are just so ignorant over what the Scriptures say. They're so easily deceived. The best way to equip yourself is, one, make sure you're under a pastor who's teaching the Word of God. And I covered recently in a series I'm doing on Wednesday nights on the filling ministry of the Spirit and why it is that some Christians never grow. And some don't grow because there's not a church in the area where a pastor is opening and teaching expositionally God's Word. And I always tell people, find the best church that you can find, become a member of it, pray for the pastor, and if need be, uh, get some vitamin supplements online. Uh, Get whatever you can online. And God knew at the end of the age there would be gross apostasy. He knew we would have this silly, ridiculous model 
that tens of thousands of evangelical churches have adopted all under the name of church growth. People say, but our church is growing. So isn't the National Cemetery here in Beaufort, and they got new members every week. You know, that's not a sign necessarily of God's blessing. So with that said, um, you know, the fact that your daughter is astute is good. Help her, you know, give her the Search the Scriptures app. If she doesn't have it, get her studying God's Word, listening to messages. Hey, honey, when you go for a walk, listen to this message. Get her listening to expository preaching wherever she may find it, and her life will change, and she'll be equipped. That's the way they taught Secret Service agents. Initially, the Secret Service, though it's still under their authority, was to deal with counterfeit money. And the way they dealt with counterfeit money was teaching these agents everything about the real thing. They knew everything about the texture, the taste, the look, the feel, so that when a counterfeit bill came into their hand, they knew instantly this is a fake. You can study the cults endlessly. That's not the answer. The answer is to study the truth endlessly, and then when a cult comes along. So if someone took, for instance, my um, course on the doctrine of the Trinity— or even our handout that we offer in the discovery class. I had a man come Sunday night to meet the pastor, and he was visiting from out of town, but he doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And I said, well, look, this is like no small thing. Because, for instance, in not believing the doctrine of the Trinity, they usually deny the God is spirit and as a unique member of the Godhead, and Jesus is Lord. And I said, look, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, meaning God in human flesh, you are going to die in your sins. If that's true, you better get this straightened out. And I gave him some resources, and I said, study these. And if you have questions, feel free to follow up, and I'll be happy to try to help you. But, you know, again, you want your children and you yourself to know the truth so well that you can communicate truth so they can immediately spot a fake. And you're obviously doing something right with this child because she knew it was a fake. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Randy out of Lawton, Oklahoma. He says, I am a firefighter and spent a good portion of my life at the fire station. There are guys here that say they have been visited by ghosts and some even claim that they have been touched by those ghosts here at the fire station, and the fire station appears to be haunted. Is that possible? As Christians, are there any biblical reasons to believe that there are ghosts and that they have and can visually appear to you and touch you? Well, it's a good question. So is there such a thing as ghosts? The answer really is all depends on how you define a ghost. If the term means spirit beings then the answer is yes. If by the term ghost you mean some person who has died and now has come back to haunt you or, you know, to take ownership of his property. And so people say, that house is haunted. It's got ghosts in it. You know, uh, so-and-so used to live there and now he comes and he visits on certain nights. And the answer to that is no. The Bible is abundantly clear that it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. In other words, after a person dies, they are immediately in heaven or they are immediately in Hades. And Hades someday, which is a place of torment, will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, into Gehenna. Uh, And so it's impossible 
for a person after he dies to communicate at this point in the history of um, God's providence and unfolding of truth. It's impossible now on this side of the cross for some uh, loved one to come back and to communicate with you. And this is why the Scripture, especially in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus and other passages, it, it gives some very strong warnings against witchcraft and necromancy and fortune-telling and idolatry and the like. But can a demonic spirit come and communicate? And the answer is yes. And again, there are sometimes things that are exceptions to the rule, and you don't build a doctrine off an exception to the rule. For instance, um, take, um, take the folks in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Uh, they do not receive the Holy Spirit the moment they believe. It's not until the apostles come down and lay hands on those men that they receive the Spirit of God. That's unique. By the time, by the way, you come to the epistles, Romans 8, 9, Ephesians 1, 13 to 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it is assumed that at the moment of conversion, the Spirit of God is living in you. But God had a reason why in Acts 8, after they had genuinely believed, that they received the Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And it's because of the nature of who they were. They were Samaritans. They were hated by Jews. They were disdained by Gentiles. They were half-breeds, as people sometimes call them. And so God saw the potential for a divided church. And so when the apostles came down and they laid hands, they put their authority over this work that these people are as much Christians, as much a part of the body of Christ. But I would not develop a whole doctrine like Pentecostals do, who say, well, first you get saved, and then after you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's historical Pentecostalism. Uh, Because they've been challenged so much, they've changed that and tweaked that a little bit. First you get saved, you get the Spirit, but then you get this deeper second work of the Spirit after you're saved. They call it the baptism of the Spirit, Speaking in tongues typically manifested. Again, that's just erroneous. You do not take an exception. You do not take an exception where Samuel comes up, and God had a reason for that and built a whole doctrine on it. Um, You do not take an exception of someone like Lazarus who'd been dead for four days and to say, well, people can, you know, um, that this is a pattern of where we build a biblical doctrine. So today, when a person dies, they are either in heaven or what we might call hell or Hades. There's no in-between. But can demonic spirits come? Yes, they can. Can demonic spirits manifest themselves as humans? It appears they can, just like uh, good angels can appear as angels, and you might not even know it. And so if you have, quote-unquote, something going on in your firehouse. I can tell you it's not Uncle Fred who's come back to, you know, the great firefighter in the sky to shake you guys up. It's, uh, it, 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 at, at best, it's a demon. And if it's a demon, you should be concerned, not you as a believer, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What it can mean sometimes is that you have people in the firehouse who are playing around with the occult. This is why God warns against witchcraft and Ouija boards and trying to communicate with the dead because you're opening yourself up to the demonic. 
And that's very, very dangerous. But the Christian doesn't have to fear these kinds of things. Oh, you know, I'm afraid my house might be haunted. And look, if you're walking with the Lord, you don't have anything to fear. You just rest in the sovereign God, and and there's no power over your house or your car or anything else that some demonic spirit has on you. That's just a lot of hoopla and sensationalism that people make up to sound dramatic and to um, build, I think, some false doctrines. But you should obviously be concerned for your friends, your fellow firefighters, and you should say, well, the Bible does teach that there can be demonic spirits, that your loved ones and former firefighters in the sky can't come back and haunt us or bother us or anything else, but demons can come, and your only protection over a demon is to know Christ as your personal Savior and use it as an opportunity to turn the conversation around and to share the good news. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Gina, and it's actually a... um an image from Douglas Wilson's Instagram post, and she says, what do you think about this Instagram post from Douglas Wilson? Okay, and, so that's a that's an Instagram post from the book of Revelation that he's recently written. Correct, yes, sir. Yeah, so, look, Doug Wilson, he's a good guy. I wouldn't get my eschatology from him. Uh, he's confused. I, I don't really, in the truest sense, respect him. You say you don't respect Doug Wilson? No, I don't. I don't respect any preacher who promotes drinking and even has events where they invite men to come and test their beer. I don't, I don't respect preachers there in Moscow, Idaho, who, you know, do little posts where they have on display all the various beers of Europe and America. I, I just don't respect that. I, I just don't see any power uh, from God on such a life. And he's discombobulated in his theology. You might want to listen, Gina, to my introduction to the book of Revelation, my introduction to the introduction. I have a message, Revelation 1, 1 to 3. And basically, when you approach the book of Revelation, there are four views. There's a no-time view at all. That's the allegory view that Augustine presented to us. And everything is just a symbol. None of it is real. Um, it can mean basically whatever the allegorical interpretation is that you're using to adopt. That's the no-time view. There's the preterist view. That's the past view of Revelation. Praetor from the Latin means past, and so they say the book of Revelation is all in the past. It's history, Um, and there are people who take that view, that it's all fulfilled. The Antichrist has already been here, the Great Tribulation. The only event we're waiting for is the Second Coming, They're called partial preterists. There are a few called full preterists. They say Jesus has already come back. Just weird. Then there's a historical view, and they say, and that's Wilson's view. He is saying that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled now in the course of history. Look, there have been people since Luther who have taken that position, and there are as many interpretations on the historical view as there are people. Because it's always different in whatever age. Or there's a futuristic view that says chapters 4 through 19 are all in the future yet to be fulfilled. That's the right view. 